I think sometimes here in the United States, in a somewhat Christianized culture, even if it's not necessarily always a very theologically accurate culture, that we can grow relatively numb to the true claims of Christianity. I think if you were to ask the average American today what Christianity is about, you could probably get all kinds of answers, but you'd probably get something along this line. Christianity is the idea that you should be nice to people and basically moral. In fact, there is a label that has been given to this current generation, and it is said that they seek after therapeutic, moralistic deism. So classical deism is the idea that there's a God somewhere, he kind of set everything spinning like a master clockmaker, and then after that he just kind of let it spin, and eventually it's all going to sort of run out. But we've added to it these ideas that we need therapy because we're constantly waffling in our pain and so forth, and not to diminish the reality of human problems and so forth, but we constantly are in need of people to tell us it's going to be okay. So it's therapeutic and then moralistic, and basically that is you just need to be good to your fellow man. So there has been this religious term created, therapeutic moralistic deism. And basically the idea is there's this God out there, and he meets your needs when you need them. When you don't need him, he kind of leaves you alone. And then on top of that, you basically have this idea that as long as you're a good person, that everybody can get along and everything will kind of you know, come out in the wash in the end. I think in one way or another, most Westerners, at least most Americans, kind of live that way. And the idea is that basically you're okay, I'm okay, and as long as I have my needs met in a moment of crisis, that there's this God out there that kind of meets me halfway and helps me when I'm struggling, but kind of leaves me alone when I don't need him, that, that that's basically the American ethic today. And so whenever you live in a culture like that, everybody gets to make up their own truth. Everybody gets to make up their own path. But our brothers and sisters, even today, are suffering all over the world for claiming Christ today. In some ways, we have dumbed down the truth to the point that we don't really even understand it anymore. When we hear of a family that underwent persecution and had to come back to the United States to seek safe haven because they were going to die, that doesn't really make sense to us. And perhaps for you today, if you are new to these ideas of Christianity and you're considering the claims, this stuff doesn't even make sense to you. And it may well be because the churches you've been in or the message you've heard is not really the true gospel at all. As we look into Genesis chapter 11 today, I think it's going to become clear for us that there is a problem with humanity. And frankly, we don't do anybody any good at all if we don't clarify the truth. So as we look into Genesis chapter 11 today, we're going to see once again, as Moses has been careful to do throughout the first 10 chapters of the book, the reality of human sinfulness. So let's take time to read now the entire chapter as we have been doing. And I want you to keep in mind as we read that what we're reading about is sort of a twofold idea. We're going to read about rebellion, but we're going to read about restoration. Now, the restoration is not clear on the pages, but there are hints at it. And as we go through our teaching time today, we're going to draw those hints out. We're going to tease them out a bit. So rebellion and restoration, I think, are the two primary thoughts that come to us from Genesis chapter 11. Let's read together. This is God's word. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. As people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. 
They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. These are the words of the Lord. Now, if you've been a Christian a while and you've been reading your Bible for some time, you're used to passages like this. Now, you might be the kind of person that kind of runs over them really quickly because they seem really dense and boring and not very useful. When you find something about like marriage or child rearing or money, your, you know, your eyes stop on the page and you spend some time meditating on that. But this stuff's kind of like the throwaway stuff, whether you've been in church a long time or not. This stuff just kind of seems like, yeah, what does it really matter? It's just a genealogy. But as I've said to you several times as we've gone through these first 11 chapters of Genesis, there is great blessing to be found if you take time to pause and realize the truths that Moses is communicating. Remember, Moses is writing hundreds of years after the events that we find here on the pages in front of us. Why did he write? Well, we've taken time to rehearse this in the past, but it's a good idea to talk about it one more time. Moses was the one who led the people of Israel, the Jews, the Hebrew people, 
out of captivity in Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. As he did that, they needed to know some certain things. They needed to be able to interpret why the evil Egyptians the way were the way they were. They needed to understand that the land into which they were going, the land of Canaan, was full of people who were very similar to the Egyptians, very evil, very rebellious against God. They needed to be able to interpret the rebellion in their own hearts, the, the kind of rebellion that stood against God despite the fact that he gave them a multitude of blessings. They needed to understand that there was a God who would fight for them. They needed to understand that there was a God who would provide for them. They needed to understand that there was a God who was worthy of their worship. So basically, they needed to understand who they were, why their world was like it was, who God was, and to whom they owed their worship. And as Moses wrote their history, they had to understand where did we come from and where are we going and is everything going to be okay? Genesis chapter 11 is a very important hinge chapter in the story. For by the end of chapter 11 here in the book of Genesis, you get Abram, who would later be called Abraham, who would be the father of the people of Israel. But where did he come from? Out of of what context did he arise? We saw last week in Genesis chapter 10 the way the earth was repopulated after the flood. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And by and large, all three sons' family wandered from God. Ham's family in particular was very rebellious against God. But there is a promise from Noah's own lips that Shem's family would be the family through which redemption would come. And that is incredibly essential. In fact, in so many ways, that's the basic message of the 50 chapters of the book of Genesis. That way back in Genesis chapter 3, when humanity willfully rebelled against God, that they were cursed for their sin. And needfully so, because God must punish sin. If he If he fails to punish sin, he's no longer God. He violates his own holiness. But in the midst of the cursing, again, which God had to do, there is a promise that restoration will come. But but by what means? How will it come? Will God just sort of wipe the slate clean? Well, if he does that, he hasn't punished sin, and therefore he, again, violates his holiness. No, no. Salvation will come by some means, and we know that it will be through a seed, a person, a man. Now, just as a bit of foreshadowing, we we know that that will be answered in Jesus Christ. I mean, it doesn't do us any good to pretend like we don't know the end of the story, because we do. There would come a seed that would take the punishment for us. You see, God never did away with the needful punishment that had to come. It came. It just was delayed for thousands of years. But it did come, and it was, it was meted out, it was borne out upon the Son of God. He bore the punishment that we deserved. But in doing so, he also conquered sin and death. So you see, Jesus was not just a great teacher. Jesus was not just a nice person that showed us how to turn the other cheek. Jesus became an offering for sin. Jesus became the one who bore the punishment that we deserved. Jesus is the one who took the wrath of God so we don't have to. 
and all those who trust him, who put their confidence in him, not just to merely believe things about him, but put their confidence in him, can be rescued. But you see, if God had not allowed the earth to be saved through Noah's family after the flood, he would not have kept his promises. There would have been no redemption. And despite the fact that most of Noah's family once again went astray after the flood, after the time of decreation and recreation in the flood, you might think that humanity would would learn its lesson and then follow God because they feared him and they delighted in him. But that wasn't the case. Humanity once again very quickly runs from God. You see, that's what will happen. Unless God continues again and again to intervene in the lives of his people, they will destroy themselves. You see, there's never been a period in human history that if, if the deistic God of our human imagination just lets things go, that, that finally we can steady ourselves. You know, it's like whenever you learn to ride a bike when you're a kid. Your dad or your mom takes you out in the street or in the backyard if they're nice so that if you fall, you don't hurt yourself. But if you're, you know, out on the street, you, you ride along and mom and dad are kind of with you and they hold the back seat and, and you wipe out a few times. You know, you scrape your legs. Nowadays, our kids have like knee pads and shoulder pads and helmets. Back in the day, we didn't have that stuff. We just crashed and you got tired of crashing. But eventually, mom and dad would take, would take the training wheels off and you just had to go. I think we have kind of the idea that, that that's how God kind of works. Like he, he sets us straight and, and teaches us how to live and, and shows us a better way. And then eventually we can just kind of go on our own. And he doesn't really have to intervene. It's not the case at all. Throughout human history, both in Noah's day and now in the day of his children who repopulated the earth. And the same is true today. Unless God is constantly intervening to, to pull us away from sin, inject his grace, we will destroy ourselves. Genesis chapter 11 is just one more example of that. The first thing I think we should see today is that because of the fall, the human race craves autonomy. Because of the fall, the human race craves autonomy. Now again, you might think that after the flood, we would have learned our lesson and everything would kind of be worked out. I mean, after all, it was pretty obvious what God had done. And you'd have to think that Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, his three kids, would have told the story well. It's like the biggest story. We have some big stories here in our generation. We were going through some old stuff of ours the other night from the basement, and and I still have the paper from September 12, 2001, recording the events of the day before. that's, That's a watershed issue for our generation. If you're a little older, you probably remember when Kennedy died or whenever man walked on the moon. We have these sort of watershed moments in our history. No intended play on words here, but what was a bigger watershed moment than the flood? You'd think that they would have talked about that a lot, like Shem, Ham, and Japheth's kids. Hey, you know, you probably don't remember this, but you were born on a boat. You know why you were born on a boat? Because God flooded the world. He did that because he was mad, and he was justifiably mad because of our sin. And you would think that, like, the kids would tell their kids, so the grandkids and great-grandkids and so forth knew. But somewhere along the line, because God wasn't going to punish the world like that again, humanity started getting their way again. You see, it didn't take that long. It doesn't even take a generation for a whole people group to turn away from God, to ignore the reality of God and what they owe him, and to go their own way. And 
what's going on here at the Tower of Babel is basically just that. What was it that Satan tempted Adam and Eve with back in the garden? I mean, very essentially, what was it that he tempted them with? What was the very thing that caused him to fall? We don't know a whole lot about Satan's fall, but we can read between the lines a bit. He wanted to compete with God. He didn't want to be God's servant. He didn't want to have to live in dependence on God, so he went his own way and led a rebellion from some of the other angelic beings. So what did he tempt Adam and Eve with? The same. Basically, he said to them, if you'll just do this, you can become like God. And frankly, God's a killjoy, Adam and Eve. He doesn't want you to attain to his stature. You can, and he's keeping you from that fruit because once you eat of it, you'll know, and you'll be empowered, and you can live autonomously, and then you can be happy. And ever since, we've been suffering from that disease. How does it show up in our lives? If you're a father and a husband that dominates your house, that leads out of fear, unrestrained strength, mean-spiritedness, if you're tyrannical, you are proving that you love autonomy. If you're a wife that, despite the fact your husband might be mean or he might be nice, who doesn't want to live in submission to a husband, even though God has called you to that. You're demonstrating what God warned Eve about. You want to live your own way and be in control. If you're a child, and you just can't stand living under the authority of your parents, why is that so? Because you crave autonomy. You want to live under your own authority. We see this in our churches a lot. People who don't want to live under the God-given authority of eldership, and frankly, we must admit that elders are not always perfect. But even beyond that, Paul encourages in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are to all live in submission to one another. But we don't like that terminology. We don't even like that idea. I think in some ways that's because of the American ethic, the idea is that we're all sort of independent pioneers. We're not driving around Conestogas anymore and wearing like the first pair of Levi's and a wide-brimmed hat, like with our oxen and so forth. But, but that, that early spirit of independence and autonomy, we kind of still have that now. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. People at Babel were much the same way. It wasn't wrong to have a city. It wasn't even wrong to have a, a nice edifice like this tower. But it was the spirit behind it. They basically wanted to shake their fist in the face of God and say, Look at us. Look what we can do. We don't need you. Now, perhaps from time to time, you can show up and give us some therapy. You can help us be moral. But we'd rather you just kind of leave us alone. Oh, and by the way, Look how strong we are. Don't contend with us. And isn't it kind of ironic here, and and I think Moses wrote this on purpose. Look in verse 5. The Lord came down. They were trying to build their way up to him. He had to come down to them just to deal with them. 
They, they couldn't build their way to him. This was a foolish thought. Sin is nothing if it's not deluding, D-E-L-U-D-I-N-G. Sin is nothing if it doesn't give us grand illusions that truly just lead us astray to destruction. Sin does that. And our pride and our anger and our foolishness, we ignore reality and we destroy ourselves. You've been there. Maybe some of you are there today. You fundamentally doubt whether or not God can really make you happy. You fundamentally doubt whether these scriptures are actually true. And instead, you've put the blinders on, you've put your head down, and you're just going to go your own way, come what may. And seething in your anger and blind in your pride, you're going to go headlong into destruction. I do not tell you that with any sort of glee or delight. I tell you that because you better wake up. You see, one of the reasons why we have a difficult time understanding persecution around the world when it comes to the gospel is we don't really have it here to anywhere the same degree. But if you proclaim the gospel, let's say in Somalia today, or Syria, or Saudi Arabia, now in Nigeria and many other places in the world, if you do that, if you proclaim that humanity is sinful and that only Jesus Christ can rescue you from that sin and that most people are going to miss it and you better turn to him or you're going to be destroyed, you can lose your life for that. Here, you're just seen kind of as a nice moral person. People can respect you for that. You might be seen as somewhat of a religious quack, but as long as you cut your grass and you take your kids to school and everything kind of works out okay, people will basically leave you alone. But we've lost the clarity of human sinfulness. We've lost the clarity of the fact that God will not put up with human autonomy apart from himself. So you see, all of Adam's children were infected with this disease that we call autonomy. The people at Babel certainly were, and we are as well. So what did God do? Well, it certainly wasn't hard for him. He just came down and he gave them different languages. And then they couldn't talk to each other anymore, and they couldn't build anymore, and they dispersed. Now, in some way, this was a bit of a blessing, if you really think about it. Way back in Genesis chapter 1, God told his people to populate the earth. Here they were sort of resisting that. By bringing division among them through giving them different languages, he made them do it. Now, I've heard all kinds of bad interpretations of Genesis chapter 11. In fact, back in the day, I went to a pretty fundamentalist conservative university. This particular passage was used to, to support the fact that, that different ethnicities should never marry. That's a terrible interpretation of this passage. God's not separating ethnicities out so that you know, they can never come back together again. He's not saying that you should never learn another language. He should never, he's never saying you should never have another spouse or a child of a different ethnicity. That's not the application of this passage. 
The idea, though, of this passage, though, is there's going to be division, which is not necessarily bad. God intended that. It was probably inevitable to begin with. But God kind of forces it along here. Because what they were doing is they thought, if we can just come together in this homogenous sense, if we can all have the same language and, and all have the same government and, and all have the same ideas about life, that we can, we can kind of be our own gods. In a sense, they were, they were seeking deification. They were seeking to be on par with God. And God would not have that. So he, he busted it apart. And he made them disperse. So because of their sinful rebellion, God introduces confusion. Because of their passion for autonomy, God intervenes and says, I won't let you have that. Because God would not let them compete. God would not let them be on par with him. Now, they could never be in the first place. He doesn't mean here in, in verse 6 that, that they can somehow become gods. Because he says there, nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. He doesn't mean that somehow they can reach some sort of deified state. He just means that as image bearers, they have great capacity. And left unchecked, their sinful, their sinful tendencies, their sinful decisions will lead to disaster. So in some ways, you might look at this as punishment, and it is, but it's also an act of mercy. He's restraining them here. I said to you earlier, unless God continually steps into human history and restrains us, we will just destroy ourselves. I am fully convinced that if God had not rescued me from my sin, if he had not made me his own, if he had not demonstrated to me that he alone is worthy of delight and worship, I can guarantee you that I would not be married today. I just guarantee it. I would be addicted to all kinds of things which would destroy my marriage. I promise you. I would be a horrible father. I would be no kind of friend you would ever want because I would worship money, I would worship sex, and I would worship me. And guess what? If you're being honest with yourself, you all would in one way or another too. And despite periodic attempts to come together and erect for ourselves monuments to sex and money and power, eventually we would just break apart because we can't stand anybody to be with us and be on par with us because we want to be gods ourselves. That's why Eve gave in so easily. And that's why all of the seeds after her kept doing the same thing. See, it's not a bad thing to live under the authority of another. Now, we all have to admit that, that all of us in one way or another have lived under the authority of a bad person before. Perhaps you've had a husband that has been the worst kind of husband. Maybe not just verbally, but, but physically or even sexually. Maybe another authority figure in your life, a father, an uncle, somebody you trusted was the same. Maybe you've had terrible bosses. Maybe anybody who's ever had any measure of authority over you has proven himself or herself to be a massive disappointment. I don't doubt that. There's enough people sitting in front of me today who I know your stories that I know that's true, and it breaks my heart. I'm so sorry. But you see, 
There is one who is worth living for. There is one that we can trust. There is one who is always good, who will never abuse, who will never hurt. He's the one who made the sun and the moon. He's the one who separated the dry land from the seas. He's the one who created the seasons and the animals and the plants, who gives us oxygen and sunlight and beauty and life. And all the problems that we have seen in human authority over time that have contributed to our desire to live autonomously are rejections of the one true God who is full of goodness. You see, God created the world to live under his authority, and it would have been great. So thanks a lot, Adam and Eve, right? But here we are today. But you see, God has not left it like that. There, there is a remedy. And I want to show you that. The second thing I want us to see in this text, and it's, it's not super clear if we don't take the seeds of this text and see how they bear fruit later in the Bible. I want you to see that because of promised redemption, there is hope for restoration. I won't take time to read through all these weird names. You do notice, just incidentally, that, that lifespans are decreasing significantly by this point. If you read Genesis chapters 4 and 5, people are living like 900 plus years. By the time you get here to Genesis chapter 11, God's shortening it down. He's basically saying, I'm not going to let you live so much longer. Now, in some ways, that's a mercy because it's really hard to live so long in a fallen state. But even more than that, God's basically saying, I'm going to show you you're limited. Your days will be numbered and I'll control every single one of them. But the main thing you've got to get out of this latter portion of the text is that this God who breaks everybody apart continues to allow the earth to be repopulated and spread out. But the primary thing that comes out of the bottom of this text is that there's a guy named Abram. He has a wife named Sarai, and they don't have any kids. Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, and, and I do mean the play on words here, is pregnant with meaning. She's not pregnant. At least, not yet. But that verse is full of questions. Why did God mention that? And what's going to happen? Look with me just briefly down in chapter 12, which we'll get into next week. God calls Abram. Abram, at this point, is not a worshiper of Yahweh. He's not a worshiper of the one true God. He's living in a pagan land. And even though God promised to bring the seed, the one that he promised way back in Genesis chapter 3, the one that would come and crush the head of the serpent and bring restoration to Israel and, and the whole world. Shem's line is promised to be the one through which that seed would come, but Shem's line is not worshiping God, and Abram's a perfect example of that. So God calls him out of his country, chapter 12, verse 1, and his kindred, and he's going to take him to a new land. He's going to put him in a new context. But then look at this promise in verse 2. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, when you read Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11, are the families of the earth worshiping the one true God? Exactly the opposite. They're erecting an edifice as a symbol to say, you're not God, we're God. God shows up and punishes them. 
But you see, God is not just a God of punishment. God is not just a God who disperses. Our God is a God of grace who unifies. And see, right away in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, there's a promise that all those nations that have rebelled against God, one day they're going to receive blessing through a man. And in a sense, it would be Abram. But he couldn't die for their sins and bring them forgiveness. He couldn't bring them back to God. Maybe it would be his son, but wait a minute. His, his wife couldn't have kids. There's more to her story, as we'll see as we go through this book. In fact, if you understand the story of Israel, they would get a child. But Isaac, their child, would not be the one who would bring redemption. But maybe his son, if you know the story of his kids, they're a mess. But through one of his kids, a nation would be born. His name would be Jacob. He would get another name. Jacob's other name was Israel. By the end of the book of Genesis, as a bit of foreshadowing, you've got about 70 people in Jacob's family. And they go to live in a land named Egypt where they're going to have abundant food and be able to survive because there's a big famine in their land. By the time you get to the next book in the Bible, there's probably more than a million of them, but now they're in captivity. And the rest of the story of the Old Testament is how God gets them out of captivity, makes them into a nation, and promises continually that he'll bring them redemption. But, but are they waiting with great, faithful, worshipful anticipation? By and large, the story of Israel's history is one of great tragedy and rebellion. At many points throughout the Old Testament, the first part of our Bible... Israel is likened to a harlot, to a whore, to a prostitute. Why does God use that metaphor? Because at one point he had made her his princess and then his queen. She would be his bride in a sense through which he would bless the world, but she played the whore. She turned on him. By the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, you've got a little remnant left. And within that remnant, you've got even smaller remnant that's actually worshiping the one true God. And then you come to the New Testament. And God stoops, and through a little teenager who had never had sex before, conceives within her a child from the Holy Ghost who will be holy, the promised one who had been anticipated for millennia. He did it inconspicuously. He did it without great immediate fanfare, at least globally speaking. He grew up for 30-odd years in the back country. But he wasn't a normal man. He was the Son of God. At one point, he tells his disciples once he begins his public ministry and begins to unveil who he is, that if he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself, men from all nations. But not lifted up on a throne in a palace in the capital of the city, but lifted up on a cross where he would be crucified, Why? Because humanity from Adam and Eve, the people who died in the flood, the descendants of Noah here in Genesis chapter 11, they all were sinners. And left to themselves, they would never seek God. They would run from him and they deserve his wrath and punishment. 
But Jesus came to take away that wrath. In fact, it is said in the New Testament that Jesus is a propitiation. And again, if you're kind of newer to religious thought, that's one of the reasons you don't like it because those big words don't make a lot of sense to you. But very basically, the word propitiation means that Jesus is a wrath bearer. One of our really good evangelical theologians was asked not long ago, from what are we saved? Are we saved from sin, from Satan, from from destitution, from frustration? His answer was, we are saved from God. That's true. Now, we are saved by God, but he is saving us from himself because he must punish sin, and that's why he sent his son. You ever thought about that from Jesus' point of view? Jesus died so he didn't have to destroy us. That's mercy. You see, whenever you think about it that way, it demonstrates to us that God did not just resign himself to keeping some promise. You know, it's like sometimes you make a promise to somebody, and just because you want to be known as a person who keeps their word, you go ahead and keep it anyway. You ever, you ever like that? And, and you look back, you're like, I wish I, hadn't, I wish I hadn't put my name on the line there, but, you know, I'm an American, so I've I got I to gotta keep my word. That's not what God was like. God didn't sign his name on some dotted line back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve and said, well, you know, I, kept my, I made a promise, I better keep it. I'm God after all. No. In the book of Hebrews, it is said that there was joy set before Jesus in giving up his life for us. That doesn't make any sense. That means that the Son of God delighted in dispensing mercy. But at what cost? At what cost would the delight be satisfied? Only if he gave himself for us. But he didn't stay dead. He was punished for our sins and and bore God's wrath, but then he rose again. He conquered sin and death. And so he's not this hapless victim. He's one who conquered it all. And if we'll trust him, then then our sin will be taken away. But, But we know that we'll reign with him in eternal life or forever. So he rose from the grave, and right before he went back to be with the Father in heaven, he gave his apostles promises that he would be with them forever, but he also gave them marching orders. Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 1. Acts is the fifth book of our New Testament. If you're following along in one of those black Bibles in the back, I'd like you to turn to page 909, because you'll find it there. But in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives the apostles, his first disciples, marching orders. In verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus is about to ascend back to heaven after the resurrection, he says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you finally going to bring all the promises to pass? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, it took thousands of years for him just to show up and do this work of redemption. But he's basically saying it's not over yet. Then he gives them orders. But you will receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Which is what God promised Abram back in Genesis chapter 11, that through the nation of Israel a seed would come. His name is Jesus. And all the nations the rebellious nations who deserved God's wrath, who wanted to go their own way with rebellious autonomy, they could be blessed again. And then look in Acts chapter 2. I 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, verse 1, they were all together in one place, these people being the apostles and, and those following them. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, which is where Abram was from, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visits from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour up my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour up my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Then he goes on to talk about the fact that all this points to the reality that Jesus, the Son of God, has now shown up. He has been crucified to suffer for our sins. He has been resurrected and has now gone back to heaven and is now sending his spirit to bring renewal. And now all the nations of the world can be blessed. So in Babel, what did God do? He broke it apart into different languages so they couldn't understand it was punishment. But right away, he promised that a seed would come through a pagan named Abram. Eventually, that seed named Jesus came. And because of Jesus and his gifts and promises, he brings the nations back together. And interestingly, here in Aaron Jack chapter 2, they can all understand again. Now, this was a moment in time. But now God has given us voice to go into all the world, just like he commanded the disciples back in Acts chapter 1. Not just in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the immediate surroundings of the Jews, but to all the earth. Because of Jesus, the gospel, the good news that we might be rescued from our sin. We might be rescued from sinful autonomy which will destroy us like at Babel. Jesus is making all things new. So that's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to take that message of renewal all over the world to those who desperately need it. Not just in safe places, but to unsafe places. But in our immediate context as well, which for a lot of us is the hardest place. Might not be that hard to write a check for a couple hundred bucks as somebody who's going to go take the gospel to a hard to reach place. In fact, you might even feel good about yourself for doing it. And I encourage you to do it. But it's a different thing to go to your neighbor who lives in a nice house with a nice lawn and nice cars and tell them that their sinful tendency toward autonomy will destroy them. And the only way that they might be rescued is to turn to the one who made them in the first place and to live in happy dependence and submission to him. 
that's not a very popular message, and that's hard to say. But it's the truth. So I say to you today in great simplicity, if you have not yet trusted Christ and you are bent toward autonomy, that autonomy, which seems so attractive, better than any alternative, will destroy you. God made you to live in submission to him, not because he's mean, not because he wants to be a tyrant over you, but because he wants you to live in happy submission to him. And that's really the path of joy. God may not always give you everything that you want, but that's because he's wise. A lot of the things that God will withhold from you will destroy you. Unlimited money, unlimited sex, unlimited power, and unlimited whatever else you want to put into the blank. God knows exactly what you need. And frankly, sometimes God makes you feel the lack of what you think you need to drive you to himself. And specifically, you need redemption. You need forgiveness. And that is what Jesus offers you today. He offers you much more, but that is how it begins. So have you submitted to the Son of God, the one who came and gave himself for you? Are you seeking to establish your own righteousness, to bargain with God, to barter with him and buy him off with your good moralistic behavior? That is a fool's errand. And so I say to you today, submit to the one who made you. He alone can make you happy both now and for eternity. And he proved that because he gave you his best gift. You think God withholds things from you? He gave you his son. And he allowed him to be murdered so that your punishment could be borne by Christ, so that you don't have to be punished, and that you could receive new life both now and for forever. In the beginning, humans were punished for their rebellious pride. They did not want to live under God's rule, and so from the very beginning, he clarified who was in charge. That hasn't changed today. He's still in charge. Abram is a perfect example to us, and we will study him over the next several weeks. He's a perfect example to us that God does, make, does not make the world new through heroic saints. Abraham has tons of flaws. God saves the world in simple ways, in surprising ways, in ironic ways. And through sending his son Jesus, who was not an obvious king, he showed with great irony that he would bring redemption in his own way, not through human effort. So, do you crave autonomy? Even if you're a Christian, you've trusted Christ, certainly you do. We do. So, if you're not a Christian today, if you've not trusted Christ, I call you to end your autonomy and to trust Jesus. If you are a Christian today, you still have these tendencies. And if an unbeliever who has not trusted Christ desperately needs Christ to help end the autonomy, what do you need as a follower of Jesus? What's your only remedy? It's Jesus, right? Jesus lived in perfect submission to his Father, and now his Father has made him king. And he not only is the one who can rescue you from sin and God's wrath, but he's the one who can rescue you from yourself even now. So stop. 
Autonomy does not lead you anywhere good. Autonomy only ever leads you to bad places. God proved at Babel that he would not put up with it, and he provided an alternative. So he calls you today to submit once again. And frankly, that's an everyday thing, right? For those of us who are following Christ, it's an everyday thing because we always take up that cloak of righteousness and autonomy all the time. So if you've not trusted Christ, trust him today. If you are his child and you're running from Christ and seeking to establish once again your own rule, stop and trust Christ again. May God be pleased to demonstrate to us one more time just how gracious he is to trust him, to follow him, to find renewal in him. And as we do so, I promise you that we will have the greatest joy.